From Cairo, Egypt, this is Democracy Now! Since the nationwide protests began on the 16th of September, over 300 people have been killed, including more than 40 children. Two 16-year-old boys were among six killed over the weekend. Protesters have been killed in 25 of Iran's 31 provinces. The situation in Iran is critical, with reports of children being killed, injured and detained at anti-government protests. We'll get an update. Then Noam Chomsky remembers Stoughton Lynn, the longtime peace and civil rights activist, lawyer, historian, and author who's died at the age of 92. He had quite a remarkable life, uh, very significant intellectual contributions. His, uh, one of the most important, most important for me was his book on intellectual origins of American radicalism. And finally, after Vice President Kamala Harris's visit to the Philippines, we'll speak with Filipino climate activist Yeb Sanyo about the creation of a loss and damage fund at the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. I think just establishing this fund is 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 an expression of human solidarity for those who did not cause this problem but bear the brunt of its impacts. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from Cairo, Egypt. In Chesapeake, Virginia, a gunman shot dead at least six people inside a Walmart Tuesday night. CNN reports the suspect is to believe to be an employee or former employee of the store. There are reports he opened fire on other Walmart workers in a break room. Authorities have confirmed the shooter also died, possibly of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The shooting at the Walmart comes just three days after a gunman shot dead five people at Club Q, an LGBTQ plus nightclub in Colorado Springs. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been more than 600 mass shootings in the United States this year. House Democrats investigating Donald Trump may soon have access to six years of his tax returns. On Tuesday, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected the former president's attempt to block the Treasury Department from turning over his tax returns. The court's ruling ends a three-year battle, but comes just weeks before the Democrats lose control of the House. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused Russia of turning the cold winter weather into a weapon of mass destruction by attacking Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Millions of Ukrainians are expected to go months without heat or electricity following recent Russian strikes. The head of the Ukrainian power grid warned Tuesday of mass blackouts. For you to understand the scale of these attacks and what we have to deal with, practically all thermal and hydro generations, meaning major power stations, have been damaged by missile attacks. 
In other news on the war, Russia's denounced Ukrainian security forces for raiding a 1,000-year-old Russian Orthodox Christian monastery in Kyiv as part of a probe into whether the religious site is being used to assist Russia's war efforts. Over the past nine months, Ukrainian forces have arrested at least 33 Orthodox priests on suspicion of aiding Russia. Meanwhile, in Moscow, Russian President Vladimir Putin met Tuesday with the Cuban president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, who criticized U.S. sanctions targeting Russia. Cuba actively condemns sanctions that unilaterally and unfairly are imposed over the Russian Federation. The reasons for the current conflict in this zone must be sought in the aggressive policy of the United States and the expansion of NATO towards Russian borders. Turkey is threatening to launch a ground invasion of northern Syria as part of its ongoing assault on Kurdish groups in the area following a deadly bombing in Istanbul on November 13th. Turkey's claiming it's killed 184 Kurds in recent attacks on northern Syria and Iraq. Meanwhile, Iran is escalating its own attack on Kurdish areas. One Kurdish human rights group estimates 42 people have been killed over the last week. We'll have more on Iran after headlines. Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, has formally filed a petition with Brazilian election authorities contesting the results of last month's runoff election, which he lost to former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Bolsonaro has asked Brazil's superior electoral court to toss out votes cast on older electronic voting machines, claiming without proof that the machines are faulty. Bolsonaro's request is expected to be rejected, but could raise tensions in Brazil ahead of Lula's inauguration on January 1st. In Colombia, new peace talks have begun between the Colombian government and the country's last remaining leftist guerrilla group, the National Liberation Army, or ELN. Colombia's first-ever leftist president, Gustavo Petro, who's a former member of the guerrilla group M-19, pushed for the negotiations to resume for the first time since 2019 in an effort to end nearly 60 years of conflict. This is Danilo Rueda, Colombia's high peace commissioner. We believe that respect for differences unites us towards a common purpose. Respect for life, respect for freedom and respect for the changes necessary to overcome a set of rights issues and inequalities that have been denied to so many sectors of the Colombian society. And this internal exercise that we are beginning to develop is what gives us certainty. In Jerusalem, at least one person has died and 14 were injured after bombs exploded at two crowded bus stops this morning. Israeli authorities believe the bombs were likely detonated remotely. One of the blasts killed a 16-year-old Israeli-Canadian yeshiva student named Arieh Shachopek. The attack in Jerusalem came hours after Israeli forces shot dead a 16-year-old Palestinian boy named Ahmed Shahada in the occupied West Bank. Palestinian officials say the teenager was shot in the heart during an Israeli military raid. So far this year, Israeli forces have killed at least 200 Palestinians, including more than 50 children. 
In China, hundreds of workers at the world's largest iPhone factory have clashed with Chinese police after walking off the job. Tension has been rising at the Foxconn plant over strict COVID-19 lockdowns and unpaid wages. Videos posted on social media show workers being tear gassed and beaten outside the plant. The Biden administration's extended a pause on federal student loan payments until the end of June as a court battle drags on over Biden's plan to cancel up to $20,000 of student debt per borrower. In a statement, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said, quote, we're extending the payment pause because it would be deeply unfair to ask borrowers to pay a debt that they wouldn't have to pay were it not for the baseless lawsuits brought by Republican officials and special interests, he said. The city of Atlanta has agreed to pay $1 million to the family of Rayshard Brooks, an unarmed 27-year-old African-American man who was shot dead by the police in 2020. The incident began when officers found him sleeping in a car in the parking lot of a Wendy's restaurant. Police shot him in the back as he attempted to run away from them after grabbing one of their tasers. One officer was heard on a body cam video saying, I got him. A coalition of over 400 immigrant justice and human rights groups are urging the Biden administration to grant temporary protected status or TPS to more people from Haiti as the island nation faces a political and economic crisis with violence increasing in the streets. The efforts led by the Haitian Bridge Alliance are calling for current beneficiaries of TPS to be given more time in the program and for Biden officials to expand the relief to Haitians who fled to the United States after July 2021. The program temporarily shields immigrants from deportation and grants them permission to work in the U.S. TPS for Haitians is currently set to expire in three months in February of 2023. In labor news, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, is denouncing former Secretary of State and possible presidential candidate Mike Pompeo after he claims she was, quote, the most dangerous person in the world. Randy Weingarten said she suspects Pompeo made the comment in an appeal to billionaire Republican funders who want to dismantle public education. This is the kind of rhetoric that creates the incitement and the hate and the divisiveness that we're seeing in America and around the world today. Let me be clear. What the AFT does and what teachers do every day in classrooms is that they're the antidote to this kind of destructive rhetoric. More labor news. Starbucks is closing the first shop to unionize in Seattle, the coffee chain's home city. This is the fourth unionized Starbucks store in Seattle to be shut down since nationwide unionization efforts started. Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz warned in a video more stores would be closed soon, claiming safety concerns. But union leaders say the closures are part of the company's ongoing retaliation campaign against workers organizing. And Bloomberg's reporting Elon Musk's fortune has shrunk by over $100 billion this year due to the falling value of Tesla shares. Despite losing $100 billion, the new owner of Twitter remains the world's richest man. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, the situation in Iran is critical, where the reports of dozens of children killed, injured, and detained at anti-government protests. We'll get an update. Stay with us. 
برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن برای شرمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبال گرد و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای این هوای آلوده برای ولیت و درختای فرسوده برای پیروز و اعتمال انقرازش برای سگهای بیگناه ممنوعه برای گریه های بیوقفه برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هاینده برای این بهشت اجباری برای نخبه های زندانی برای کودکان افغانی برای این همه برای غیر تکراری برای این همه شعار های تو خالی برای آوار خونه های پوشاری برای غرص های حساب و بیخوابی برای مرد میهن آبادی برای دختری که آرزو داشت به سر It's become the unofficial anthem of the Iranian protests. The song's lyrics are taken entirely from messages Iranians have posted online about why they are protesting. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Uh, we're broadcasting live from downtown Cairo in Egypt with the Nile River flowing behind us. We begin today's show in Iran, where human rights authorities say the situation has become critical, with reports of dozens of children being killed, injured, and detained at recent anti-government demonstrations. The Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights said Tuesday that worsening repression by Iranian security forces has led to a rising number of deaths, especially in Kurdish cities. This is spokesperson Jeremy Lawrence. Since the nationwide protests began on the 16th of September, over 300 people have been killed, including more than 40 children. Two 16-year-old boys were among six killed over the weekend. Protesters have been killed in 25 of Iran's 31 provinces, including more than 100 in Sistan and Baluchistan. Iranian official sources have also reported that a number of security forces have been killed since the start of the protests. We call on the authorities to release all those detained in relation to the exercise of their rights, including the right to peaceful assembly, and to drop the charges against them. Our office also calls on the Iranian authorities to immediately impose a moratorium on the death penalty and to revoke death sentences issued for crimes not qualifying as the most serious crimes under international law. This comes as the BBC reports authorities have not been releasing protesters' bodies unless their families remain silent. 
Some say they were pressured by security officials to go along with state media reports that their loved ones were killed by, quote, rioters. On Monday, Iran's national soccer team declined to sing the national anthem before their opening World Cup match in a sign of support for the protests. Meanwhile, on Sunday, two of Iran's most prominent actresses were arrested after they voiced support for anti-government protests and appeared in public without wearing a hijab, as required by law. Ahead of her arrest on Sunday, Hengama Ghaziani wrote, Whatever happens, know that, as always, I will stand with the people of Iran. This may be my last post, she wrote. Kariun Riahi was also arrested and accused of acting against Iran's authorities. CNN reports Iran's security forces are using sexual assaults of male and female activists to quell the protests. This week, the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva set to hold a session on the protests with witnesses and victims in attendance, and will discuss a proposal to establish a fact-finding mission on the crackdown in Iran. Evidence of abuses could later be used in court. For more, we're joined by Nahid Siamdust, assistant professor in Middle East and Media Studies at University of Texas in Austin, former journalist who's reported across the Middle East, including Iran. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Professor. If you could start off by talking about the critical situation in Iran right now and also the escalating attacks by the Iranian government on Kurdish areas. Yes, in recent weeks, we've seen, especially within the Kurdish areas, Mahabad most recently, but Bukhan, Sanandaj, Saqqez, in all these cities, um, the Kurdish people have risen up, and they people have risen up all over Iran, and the authorities are going very harshly against protesters. We see photo after photo on social media of people with, um, you know, tens, sometimes hundreds of uh, pellets in their bodies. Some of these people do not survive those shots, and as you already mentioned in your report, many of the people of the protesters who are killed uh, are children, they're teenagers, they're teenagers who've taken their lives into their hands and gone into the streets to protest their living conditions, the, you know, the bleak future that they're looking into and really asking for a different future. And could you explain specifically what is it, uh, the relationship between Iran's central government and Kurdistan? Uh, so many of the protests, as you've pointed out, too, uh, the epicenter has been uh, in the Kurdish reason, uh, region. C could you explain what the relationship between the state following the revolution and uh, Kurdistan has been? Sure. So um, Kurdistan, Iran is a, you know, is a, um, a, a system of governance. So 30... Um, uh, governance and states, so to speak. And so each state, uh, including, uh, you know, the Kurdish region will have their own governors. So the central system controls these regions via the governors that they have in these, uh, in these areas. And they're oftentimes, you know, they're always approved, of course, by the central state. But, um, the people have risen up and their religious, um, you know, leaders and sheikh, sheikhs have spoken up in their defense. So, uh, you know, we've seen uh, the um, one of the sheikhs in Kurdistan joining um, the sheikh in uh, Baluchistan in asking for an independent international body to oversee a referendum in Iran. Um, and so, you know, the forces that we see, the sepahis that we see, the plainclothes um, you know, officers and uh, um, militia that we see in Kurdistan uh, suppressing the uprising uh, or the revolution there, 
Um, they come from all kinds of different backgrounds, all supported by the central state, of course. And Kurdistan is very much, you know, uh, part of Iran. And this is something that the Kurdish leaders in that region have also stated. So, you know, we have to be, when you talk about the central state and the Kurdish region, we have to be careful not to play into the regime's own uh, discourse of this mm. being a separatist movement. No, absolutely. Uh, you're right about that. Uh, and I wanted to say also, um, if you could comment in addition to the reports that we're seeing now uh, and that we said a bit in our introduction of uh, the systematic use of sexual violence against prisoners, pr uh, principally women protesters, but also men. What are you hearing about this on the ground. There have been reports widely publicized of uh, attacks by security forces in public, uh, but this is the first that we're hearing of attacks on prisoners, uh, protesters who've been imprisoned. Right. So a couple of uh, weeks ago, there was a video published of a woman um, sort of open in public um, being, um, you know, sort of uh, touched uh, absolutely inappropriately. And that set off conversations about what is actually happening in terms of the sexual abuse of these prisoners. And more recently, a couple of days ago, there was a report by CNN um, with, uh, you know, <clears throat> sort of women and others alleging that they've been sexually abused in these interrogation rooms. Um, and we've seen other reports coming through on social media. Um, the parents and the families of these um, detainees are very much pressured to keep silent. Um, and so we don't really have a full account of what is happening um, in these interrogations. And we know they are abused uh, physically, but the nature of the sexual abuse is something that still needs to really uh, be narrated and, uh, and come to the fore. Can you talk about the defiance of the Iranian people, the women who are leading these protests, and the significance of what's happening right now in Qatar, with the Iranian soccer team uh, <clears throat> refusing to sing the national anthem uh, of Iran before the game? Right. We've seen, you know, Iranians across the board, all over the nation, as you mentioned, uh, you know, people in 25 uh, out of 30 states have been um, have been killed. And so this is really a nationwide uh, revolution. Um, and uh, the defiance has been astounding. The courage uh, with which people have gone into the streets week after week, despite the killings that are happening, despite the, um, you know, also severe injuries. It doesn't just have to be deaths, people losing their eyes, people losing their limbs. Um, despite all of that, they've, they've risen up and are, uh, you know, continuing to protest. And now they've been joined as you mentioned in your report, by actresses, by athletes, by, um, uh, you know, uh, teachers unions and professors unions and so on. The Iran national team at the World Cup refused to sing the national anthem. However, um, they have not been uh, fully supported by Iranians at large. It's a very contested field. Uh, there are some among Iranians who are supporting their national team, but there are many who are not because the, uh, the national team had a visit with uh, the conservative president, Ibrahim Raisi, right before their departure. Um, and Iranians did not like to see um, their national team sort of bowing and, uh, you know, being friendly with a president whom they see as being at the head of, um, you know, uh, the repressive government, not the state, that would be the supreme leader, uh, but leading the charge against women, uh, not least because since he took office, um, 
he promised to bring morality to the streets. And this wave of protest that we see was not least caused by a year long of the morality police sort of upping the ante against women in the pub in public spaces. Um, and so the national team meeting the president uh, did not sit well with many Iranians. And, um, you know, they had a historical defeat uh, at the World Cup, losing to England. Uh, Professor Sandus, uh, you, among others, have pointed out, of course, that there have been many protests uh, in recent years in Iran, uh, starting, of course, with the 2009 protest, which is the time that we spoke to you on democracy now. But there is something, uh, as you've said, qualitatively different about the protests that are now ongoing. Could you talk about what those differences are and how you see this playing out? Do you think, despite the brutality of the state response, that these protests will go on? Right. In 2009, which was the biggest protest movement since the 1979 revolution, we saw masses of people coming into the streets, you know, and one of the biggest, there was perhaps two or three million people at once. But this nature of the slogans was still very much about reforming the system from within. We saw people engaging with the Islamic discourse of the government, right? Um, going to their rooftops and calling Allah Akbar, calling God uh, to uh, sort of, you know, bring forth that kind of, you know, Islamic um, uh, morality and decency to bring the government into into a motion of reforms. That is no longer the case. The re the revolution that we see now, and there's a lot of you know contestation around language as well. There are people who say we should no longer be calling this an uprising. This should definitely be called a revolution. Um, it's not just a matter of semantics. I think in the nature of the slogans that we see, the, these, this movement is no longer at all engaging with government discourse. There's no reference whatsoever to Islamic, uh, you know, a sort of slogans or um, phrases that people had been using and the government itself had been using. Um, people are calling for a new system. In the 2009 Green Uprising, for example, people would band together and say, um, don't be afraid, we're all together. And now it's kind of flipped around to people saying, you should be afraid, you should be afraid because we are all together. And then when we look at the slogans, you know, the harshness of it, sort of there's all um, notion of uh, Persian politeness or any sense of respect for authority or any of that is completely out the window. And we see this in the cuss words that are used against the Supreme Leader, against the Sepah. Um, they're, they're ferocious. The slogans are ferocious. The movement is ferocious. And it's of a different nature because, you know, this movement is leaderless. And so it's there are groups of people all across Iran popping up here and there. Um, but there are no leaders to be put down. So the regime can't, just like in 2009, go after the leaders of the movement and try to quell the movement through its, its leaders. Um, it's a leaderless movement. It's a very smart movement that is sort of coming together and dissolving um, and really sort of playing this um, strategic game, uh, a very sort of organic strategic game against the forces. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Nahid Siamdus, Assistant Professor in Middle East and Media Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She's a former journalist who's reported across the Middle East, including in Iran. And this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh, and we are broadcasting from downtown Cairo, Egypt, just in front of the Nile. We look now, though, at the life and legacy of Stoughton Lynn.
the longtime peace and civil rights activist, lawyer, historian, author, who died at the age of 92 last week. In the early 1960s, Stoughton Lynn taught alongside his friend Howard Zinn at Spelman College in Atlanta, and he served as the director of SNCC, the SNCC Freedom Schools of Mississippi. He was a leading early critic of the Vietnam War. The State Department stripped him of his passport after he traveled to North Vietnam in 1965. Stoughton Lind was a conscientious objector in the 1950s and later supported U.S. soldiers who refused to fight in Iraq. As the London Review of Books writes, quote, along with Rosalind and Howard Zinn and Carol and Noam Chomsky, Alice and Stoughton Lind belonged to a generation of radical married couples in the United States who took controversial, unpopular public stands on civil rights at home, Vietnam, and subsequent wars abroad, regardless of the consequences, and held fast to lifelong commitments. In a minute, we'll feature part of... Uh, his interview on Democracy Now! with Stoughton Lind back years ago. But first, we hear one of his contemporary radical academics. That's right, Noam Chomsky, the world-renowned political dissident, linguist, and author. Laureate professor in Department of Linguistics, University of Arizona, professor emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he taught for more than half a century. He spoke to Democracy Now! this week about the legacy of Stoughton Lynn. He had quite a remarkable life, a uh, very significant intellectual contributions. His uh, one of the most important, most important for me was his book on intellectual origins of American radicalism. Uh, I already that came out in the late sixties. I already knew a lot about him from his uh, uh, very. Uh, extensive and courageous work in the early days, the hard days of the civil rights movement, early days of the uh, protests against the Vietnam War when he was almost alone in the uh, measures that he took and conscientious measures in opposition to this greatest crime since the Second World War at a time when very few were engaged uh, later on to other activities of his. He was treated very shabbily by the academic profession and by the uh, intellectual world, political world. He went on relentlessly, became, went to law school with difficulty, didn't went on to become prominent in many important activities. The most significant, in my view, were the critical role he played in working with uh, working people in communities in uh, the Rust Belt, uh, trying to overcome the wreckage of neoliberal globalization by initiating supporting programs for worker control of industry uh, and uh, services, very significant in itself for the future, quite important for the people trying to reconstruct their lives from the destructive aspects of the neoliberal assault. Uh, altogether, it's a truly exemplary life 
very hard to find people like that. Personally, a regret of mine is I never actually knew him personally, only by his life and work. So that's Noam Chomsky remembering Stoughton Lynn, the longtime peace and civil rights activist, lawyer, historian, author, who just recently died at the age of 92. In 2006, Stoughton Lynn appeared on Democracy Now! This is an extended excerpt of our conversation. What is your assessment of the situation in Iraq right now? Well, <laughs> I think uh, it's Vietnam in spades. That is to say, uh, uh, illegitimate and corrupt as every South Vietnamese government was, I don't think they hold a candle to what we've created in Iraq, where uh, before the the government of Iraq can can blow its nose, it has to seek permission from the United States military. And I think that it's clear, I'm not saying anything new, that the majority of Iraqis, the great majority of Iraqis, and the majority of United States servicemen at the moment feel the same thing. Whatever problems might arise from the withdrawal of United States troops, whatever conflicts there may be within Iraq, they are, they are less, they are more manageable than the conflicts that we create by our presence. So we should leave immediately. And what was your reaction to President Bush uh, uh, in talking to ABC News, comparing Iraq to Vietnam, to the Tet Offensive? Well, isn't it interesting that they finally come around to that after saying that it wasn't an insurgency, it wasn't a civil war? Now they have uh, finally conceded that they were wrong when they forever denied the parallel to Vietnam. It's the same thing. Anyone who passed through those experiences of the 60s has to be mortified, just covered with shame and, and distress by the inability of the people who run this country to learn anything from their experience. When did you apply for conscientious objector status? In, uh, I suppose it would have been 1952. And the particular uh, status I applied for was to be an unarmed medic within the military. I didn't fancy myself planting uh, pine trees while someone else my age who didn't know about the possibility of conscientious objection was getting his behind shot off. So I chose a, uh, an option where I wouldn't have to carry a gun or shoot anyone, where the rate of casualties was as high or higher as among infantrymen, and uh, there was a way to do that within selective service law at that time, and that's what I did. We're talking to Stoughton Lynn, legendary peace activist, longtime uh, social justice advocate, helped direct the Mississippi Freedom Schools, went to Hanoi with Tom Hayden, lost his, uh, well, tenure at Yale, and wrote the definitive history of the 1993 Ohio prison uprising in Lucasville. Can you summarize that for people? 
Well, there were three big prison rebellions between 1970 and 1995. Attica, 1971, Santa Fe, tragic situation where prisoners slaughtered one another, and then finally in 1993, Lucasville, Ohio. It lasted 11 days, nine prisoners and a hostage officer were killed. A surrender was negotiated, and no sooner was the surrender negotiated with various prison spoke, prisoner spokespersons, then the state of Ohio turned around and began to build death penalty cases against those very leaders and spokespersons. They didn't care who had really done things. They wanted to nail the leaders so that no prisoner would ever have this idea again. And we're still um, deep in the process of resisting those executions. Three of the five leaders who were sentenced to death are now in federal court. The uh, person closest to execution is a man named uh, Sadiq Abdullah Hassan, who was the imam, the prayer leader of the Muslim prisoners. I've just filed a friend of the court brief for the ACLU pointing out that uh, 14 prisoners have stated under oath that it was not Hassan who was responsible for the death of the officer. And, you know, you hope and pray that um, if there can be, as with Mumia, if there can be enough concern outside the courtroom, sooner or later the folks inside will get the message. Wasn't this an unusual situation where you had um, uh, you had different sectors of the prison together? It was, and, and I'll never forget the moment when my wife, who was reading transcripts, came running to me, and she said, start and read this, read this. And it was the testimony of the chief investigator for the state, a man named Sergeant Hudson. And the question was, well, what did you find when you went into the occupied cell block after the surrender? And he said, well, there were all kinds of graffiti on the walls and in the gymnasium. Well, what did the graffiti say? The graffiti said, black and white together. Convict unity, and my favorite, convict race. Some people may think we're black and white. No, no, we're all convicts. We are a convict race. And uh, I was very moved. I hadn't seen anything quite like that since the South 30 years before. And the extraordinary thing is that those five men, the five men sentenced to death, three black, two white, one of the whites, a leader of the Aryan Brotherhood, have maintained their solidarity just like this for the last 13 years. Stoughton Lynn, as we wrap up this conversation, what gives you hope today? Well, it's funny. I suppose as you get older, people ask you that question. Why are you still plugging away? Uh, I guess what gives me hope is the kind of thing that I've just described, or what we see going on in, in Latin America uh, today, of which your 
earlier guest was a spokesperson. I mean, can you imagine people taking uh, factories over in Argentina, a, a woman who used to be a, a house servant becoming the Minister of Justice in Bolivia, the teachers in Oaxaca going on strike and demanding shoes for their children. I mean, how can you not have hope when things like this are happening so in the that's, world? So that's Stoughton Lynn speaking in 2006 on Democracy Now! To see our full interview, you can go to democracynow.org. Coming up, we speak with the Filipino climate activist Yeb Sanyo. Um, he was at the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh as a peace activist, a climate peace activist, head of Greenpeace Southeast Asia. But before that, he was chief climate negotiator for the Philippines. Stay with us. Yo pisaré las calles nuevamente De lo que fue Santiago ensangrentada en una hermosa plaza liberada Me detendré a llorar por los ausentes Yo vendré del desierto calcinante Y saldré de los bosques y los lagos Y evocaré en un cerro de Santiago mis hermanos que murieron antes. Yo unido al que hizo mucho y poco. Cuban singer-songwriter Pablo Milanes. He's died at the age of 79. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we broadcast from Cairo, Egypt. This week, Vice President Kamala Harris wrapped up a two-day visit to the Philippines that included a meeting with President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. In a speech aboard a Philippine Coast Guard patrol ship docked at the edge of disputed waters of the South China Sea, uh, Harris said the U.S. would defend the Philippines in the face of intimidation and coercion from China. Harris vowed to expand the U.S. military presence in the country even after former bases leaked toxic waste into the environment. Well, uh, last Friday, I had a chance to speak with uh, Yeb Sanyo. He is a well-known Filipino climate activist. We sat down together at the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, here in Egypt. Um, he used to be the chief negotiator for the Philippines climate delegation. But after he made an emotional plea in 2013 at the climate summit in Warsaw, Poland, after Typhoon Haiyan devastated the Philippines, well, we'll talk about what happened next. This is what he said. What my country is going through as a result of this extreme climate event is madness. The climate crisis is madness. Mr. President, we can stop this madness right here in Warsaw. So that was 2013. The next year, as another deadly storm battered the Philippines, Sanya was unexpectedly absent from the UN Climate Summit in Lima, Peru. He'd been pulled from the delegation at the last minute. 
Since then, Sanyo has returned to COP every year as an activist. Now, Yeb Sanyo is executive director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia. I spoke to him Friday in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, about the assessment of the summit this year, what had been accomplished and what hasn't. Yes, we came to Sharm el-Sheikh to demand action. Um, for uh, the interests of those most impacted by the climate crisis. And uh, we hope to bring justice and accountability into the heart of these talks by way of establishing a fund, a fund for loss and damage. And when we talk about loss and damage, it is because we live in an era where we have realized the limits to being able to adapt to climate change. What, what's happening to, to the negotiations? Well, what do you mean exactly by loss and damage? So when we talk about climate change, there, there is a notion of being able to adapt, to adjust so that you don't get impacted so severely. But when you talk about not being able to do that, meaning you lose lives, you lose cultures, you lose non-economic and economic losses and damage that is inflicted on so many communities, we're talking about a, an entirely different proposition here now. Uh, communities can no, can no longer adapt, can, they can, can no longer adjust, or they have no means to be able to access resources that will allow them to do so. And then they, 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 they lose, basically losing homes, losing land, losing livelihoods, uh, and even losing entire cultures. Some islands are even disappearing, and, and especially when we talk about slow onset events like sea level rise. There is no recourse for the most impacted. That's why we now talk about loss and damage, and that was established as the third pillar under the Paris Agreement. You've said that rich countries are rich for a reason, and that reason is injustice. Explain. Oh, absolutely. The, the kind of uh, comfort uh, and the kind of uh, progress, uh, you, you, you can say, that is now being enjoyed in the global north is a product of, you know, decades, maybe centuries of subjugation of the global south including, of course, slavery, including racial injustice, including uh, plundering resources in the global south. And so that was a product of all of that. And now, of course, including uh, the use of atmospheric space by way of burning fossil fuels. And then the global south countries, which have, uh, have the least contribution to this problem, are those who are suffering the most. It's, a, it's really a simple story. It's very unfair, and that is unjust. So... You were already, as a negotiator in Warsaw, talking about loss and damage. Um, here you're talking about putting money into that mechanism, and that's what the whole debate is about. You had John Kerry weeks ago uh, in an event with the New York Times uh, saying loss and damage means liability and compensation, and that's a place we can't go. He might have modified that over the last few weeks because of enormous pressure. But if you can talk about specifically the U.S., it's a country you have called out as the largest historic emitter of greenhouse gases. What role are they playing at the COP27? What we're seeing uh, at COP27, in, in particular on the outcome on establishing this fund, is that the U.S. is favoring the non-establishment of it, that we just continue talking and spend more resources to uh, uh, 
organize more dialogues and organize more meetings so that we don't get to establish a fund. That is very blatant in the face of real loss and damage affecting many people and communities. And uh, I, I still struggle to understand the, the U.S. position on this one when we acknowledge, of course, the importance of uh, responsibility, especially historical responsibility. That's why we have climate change. Um, we're not even talking about compensation and liability here. Maybe there's something they, they imagine that could be a result of this entire conversation that they're really afraid of. Uh, but, of course, at the heart of it is, in fact, being, being held liable and accountable for uh, all of the harms uh, inflicted on people as a result of climate change impacts. Um, th this, is, this is really basic uh, human fairness, right? So it's, it's those countries in the global north that have created much of this problem uh, should be leading the way towards uh, demonstrating the human solidarity. I think just establishing this fund is, a, is, is, a, is an expression of human solidarity for those who did not cause this problem but bear the brunt of its impacts. Mm. So if you can give advice to activists, you were the chief climate negotiator for the Philippines in 2012, then in 2013 in Warsaw. 2014, you're abruptly, well, just, you don't show up. I remember when we were in Lima, uh, because of your powerful speeches the year before, we were looking forward to talking to you, but you just weren't there. Explain why you were pulled from the delegation. 2015, you're a major activist in Paris. You go on a hunger fast for climate justice. Talk about your transformation. And since you were a negotiator, a chief negotiator, what you think the different, what kind of impact organizers can have? Oh, when I left this job, uh, I decided I think the institutions we have built will never be enough for us to truly make a difference. And I decided to join the people's movement uh, to fight climate change. Why were you tossed in 2014? Well, in 2014, to be perfectly honest, I have never bothered to, to, to find out why, but I, have, I suspect it is because of my vocal critic of the West. The Philippines actually often taking a line that is critical of the West, um, even the government, but in the end you say that they're actually working together? I, 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 I don't have any information on that, but I think uh, being pulled from the delegation for negotiators who are vocal against the responsibility of rich countries in this whole process, I think it happens to uh, smaller countries, to countries that have less power. It happens. There's, there are a lot of strings attached in these negotiations. So talk about, you're talking about the pressures you're under as a negotiator, but what filtered through to you, uh, which gives you a sense of how you can be most effective on the outside? Well, I've always, I've always cared about uh, making people understand that this is not just a scientific issue. This is, this is not just a technical issue, and it's not just an environmental issue. At the heart of the climate crisis is deeply rooted, uh, it's a deeply rooted broken system, that, and then the kind of economic world order that, uh, that dominates all of us is something that we must change, and system change must, must be at the center 
of, uh, of our struggle against climate change. And I, I think that could only be done at the grassroots. I, I don't think this battle will be won or lost in these plenary halls, nor in chambers of law. This will be won in the chambers of people's hearts. And therefore, uh, that will have to be done by organizing people. There is no magic wand. There is no silver bullet to this. Organizing means talking to people, organizing communities, and making people understand the root causes of the climate crisis. So can you talk about the dangers that environmental activists face? In 2021, the nonprofit group Global Witness um, said it had recorded that for the eighth straight year, the Philippines, Asia's deadliest country for land defenders, Last year, it recorded a total of 29 documented killings of people defending their homes, land, livelihoods, and ecosystems in the Philippines alone. This is a very sad reality for Filipino activists, and in particular, land defenders, most of them uh, coming from indigenous communities. We have seen uh, the impunity. We have witnessed the impunity. I, I know of uh, friends who uh, have given up their life just to be able to speak out, speak truth to power and to defend their land. And it, it's, uh, it's shameful to, to live in a country such as uh, my country that, uh, where, where environmental defenders are, are murdered, are not given the space uh, that is necessary to truly be able to uh, protect the environment and fight for social justice. It's, it's sad. It's sad and uh, it's, it's, it's something that uh, the world needs to pay attention to. And many people around the world should stand with people of the Philippines in solidarity. Uh, this week, the new president, uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, uh, called Bambang Marcos, uh, is at APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in Thailand, where he's pushing other heads of state, he says, for climate change adaptation. Um, in September, uh, President Marcos called for climate action when he addressed the U.N. General Assembly. Let's watch. The effects of climate change are uneven and reflect an historical injustice. Those who are least responsible suffer the most. The Philippines, for example, is a net carbon sink. We absorb more carbon dioxide than we emit. And yet, we are the fourth most vulnerable country to the effects of climate change. This injustice must be corrected, and those who need to do more must act now. So that's the new president, Ferdinand Marcos, Bong Bong Marcos. If you can talk about your assessment of him on climate and also when it comes to threats against activists, we know how Duterte uh, was so devastating when it came to violence against activists. So. Marcus Jr. has uh, a legacy to carry with him, and that part of that legacy is the, uh, is, is the inability and the lack of willingness to acknowledge historical responsibility for human rights violations committed by his father. And for me, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice anytime and anywhere, like what Martin Luther King Jr. said. And, and this failure to acknowledge that responsibility is, 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 is blatant. And that would reflect on uh, him uh, in, as he is now in power as president. And I would think that 
uh, until he acknowledges that uh, all of all of the violation, human rights violations in the past, it would be very difficult for us to trust that he can deliver uh, justice in, in in any form. And talking about his uh, his, his climate change rhetoric, uh, we need to see that in action. The Philippines continues to. Um, uh, to, to, to be powered uh, mostly by coal power, and there is no indication that renewable energy, for example, will be a priority for, for this government. Uh, uh, there, there's still a lot of coal-fired power plants being built, and we need to see rhetoric translated into action. Even if he's championing climate justice in the world, uh, it, we would be, it would be very hard for us to, to believe that until we see real uh, real sincerity in the in the context of being able to espouse justice and uh, in the fighting for human rights for the Filipino people. Also, uh, Maria Ressa's Rappler uh, just ran a story headlined: "The Philippine Delegation to COP27 Faces Leadership Shakeup," and reported the 29-member delegation of the Philippine team finds itself without its original head of delegation as well as top officials of the Climate Change Commission. Do you know anything about what's happening there? Honestly, no. I, uh, I have not been following th th that particular issue. I do know that there are members of the Philippine delegation here, I see, uh, doing the all-nighters. So I think uh, some members of the delegation are doing their jobs really well. You know, climate change is tribute to a lot of things, most significantly fossil fuel and uh, greenhouse gas emissions. I understand you're a vegan now. Is that true? No, oh, I, I am a vegetarian. You're a vegetarian. How does that... Uh, play into climate action. Why do you see that as a part of it? Well, this is this is truly important because uh, when we when we live our values as activists, it's it's really important for us to understand the big picture. And the part of that big picture is how uh, the meat industry affects climate change in so profound ways. And that's something that I care about. Although that's a very personal choice for me. Mm. So, can you talk finally about your life as what you called yourself a climate pilgrim? Talk about what that meant when you went from negotiator to activist, um, the many miles you spent walking to educate people about climate change. So, uh, we've, we've embarked on these special journeys, um, some of them in conjunction with the uh, UNFCCC Conference of the Parties, uh, Climate Summits, as we call it, uh, in 2015 from Rome to Paris and in 2018 from Italy to Poland, over six countries. These journeys uh, pay homage to people and communities affected by the climate crisis, and part of the intention is to be able to have conversations in every town that we pass through uh, and carrying the stories from the most vulnerable communities in, in especially in my country. That's Yeb Sanyo, executive director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia. I spoke to him Friday at the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. And that concludes our broadcast from Egypt for the last two weeks. Special thanks to the whole AP crew here in Cairo. Rania Khidr, Julian Jones, Ahmad Al-Naqib, Ahmad Hikmat, Ahmad Ali, and Alice Loka. And special thanks to our Democracy Now! team here in Cairo. Sharif Abdel-Kadus, Nermin Sheikh, Hani Masood, and Dennis Moynihan. And in New York, 
Network, Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Gesda, Messiah Reds, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Trina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Maria Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Mary Conlon. Special thanks to Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.